Well, amen and amen. What a great, great time in worship already this morning. Church, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, if you'll please turn them to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, and we're going to, our text for this morning is verses 1 through 4. For the next two or so years, you are mostly going to hear me telling you to turn your Bibles to the book of Romans. Now, I want to I want to put things into perspective for you. I heard this story this week, and so I thought it was, uh, it was appropriate to share as we begin this journey. So W.A. Criswell, longtime pastor at FBC Dallas, uh, was the pastor there for, uh, I think, 40-plus years and became the pastor there in his early 30s. And so, uh, by God's grace, I hope to see the same in my life, but nonetheless, so he when he first became the pastor at FBC Dallas, he announced to the church that he was going to begin a series preaching through the entire Bible. And so there was a mixed emotions amongst the congregation as some thought this was going to be, uh, you know, that the church was going to die off because of this. It was just going to be, take too long. Some were elated and excited to hear a series preached through the entire Bible. Uh, W.A. Criswell himself said that, you know, once he first started the series, that it ended up taking longer than he wanted. Uh, or that he initially thought, not that he wanted, but nonetheless, it took him 17 years in one series. So if you thought two years was going to be a long time, just consider that perspective. Some of the church at FBC Dallas began to joke. It became a running joke for new members to say, well, I joined while we were in Isaiah, or I joined when we were in this book. And nonetheless, we are in Romans for the next two or so years. So the foundation of an argument is everything. If you have no foundation grounded in truth, then whatever you're arguing for will ultimately crumble. As whatever you try to argue, if you have no foundation for that argument in truth, then ultimately you'll be picked apart. So as we begin this in-depth look at Romans, we're going to exposit this morning the foundation for Paul's message, the very reason for his writing to the church at Rome, the gospel. Gospel has become one of those words that is very much a, a Christian buzzword, often used, very seldom defined or rooted in truth, unfortunately. And I want us to be enamored at the providential working of God in the gospel of Christ Jesus and to see how that is to influence our living. And I think we will see that in God's word this morning. So I'll ask you to stand once again in honor of the reading of God's word as we read our text for today. And you can stand as you are able. Our text for today again is Romans 1 verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures, Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of God. God. Let's pray, church. God, as we come before your word and we embark on this journey, I pray that it would be oh so edifying for your church that we may greater 
glorify your name, that we may walk in greater obedience to your word, and that we may see your providential working of all things according to the counsel of your will and for your glory, and that we may join that work. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, church. So, most of us might be thinking right now, like, how can we get an entire sermon simply out of the, the introduction, a greeting to one of these letters? So, Paul's greeting in his letter to the church at Rome is the longest introduction of any of Paul's letters. It is also the most theologically dense greeting of any of his other letters. And the reason for this can be deduced in that Romans is one of the only letters in which Paul is not addressing some sort of issue within the church. He's not writing to address some theological uh, qualm that's happening within the church, some uh, false teaching that's found its way in, or disagreement, or anything like that. He's not writing to address an issue in the church. He is simply wanting to lay out a thorough, in a thorough manner, the gospel to which we have surrendered. And he wants this church, this uh, budding church, which he has not been able to visit yet. He wants to make sure that they have a thorough knowledge of what is the gospel. Where does it come from? How have we surrendered to such? How do we know that it is truth? So a, a typical Greek greeting included the name of the person sending the letter, the recipients, and some sort of greeting that went along with that. Paul's letter here to the Romans includes all of these. However, Paul takes the standard Hellenistic or, or Greek greeting and reforms it to be a reflection, a thorough summation of the gospel. And so we see here in verse 1, Paul, so there we have, who's it coming from? A servant of Christ Jesus. We're going to come back to that. Called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So, Let's start here with his descriptor of himself. So first he, he states his name, but he says, a servant of Christ Jesus. Now this is easily one of those statements that we could just jump over, move along to what's in the rest of the letter and think nothing of it. You would be amazed to search this word servant, which is from the Greek word doulos, meaning servant, slave, bond servant. It appears some 118 times in the New Testament. 30 of those occurrences are in the Gospel of Matthew and 25 of those in the Gospel of Luke. So the Gospels have a lot to say about servanthood. Servitude and slavery in the Roman context was much different than that of what we typically think of of 18th century and 19th century Americas. Household servants earned wages. They had the opportunity to buy their freedom. They were placed in responsibility of many of their master's things. Many people would put themselves into bond servitude uh, for the purpose of wanting to work off a debt or, or uh, maybe just uh, link themselves to a particular family. Nonetheless, Paul willingly gives himself this title of a servant even though it was much different than what we uh, typically think of when we hear that idea of slave or servant, it still was not something that was a high class of society by any means. So Paul willingly 
gives himself in writing this letter to this church, which he's not been able to visit, this church, which he desperately wants to go and see, he titles himself a servant. This title of servant doesn't mean just nothing. It means nothing if we don't know whom he is placing himself as a servant to. So if he were to simply say, Paul, a servant, called to be an apostle, right? That would automatically discredit him in a lot of people's eyes. But nonetheless, if we know who he has placed himself in servitude to, and it's no earthly master, then who is it? Nonetheless, he is a servant of Christ Jesus. Now, here's another thing that we could simply just jump over because of how this name has come to be used. We call it Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. We really don't think much of that. We use it as a proper name all the time, as if his first name is Jesus and his last name is Christ. But don't read this as a proper name. This is not a name as much as it is a title. Because the term, the word, the phrase Christ equates to Messiah. So here he is. So this would be read similar to the title Caesar Augustus. His name was not Caesar. Caesar was his title. It was his role. It was his position. That's what gave him his authority. Augustus is his name. So now here we have Christ Jesus. Here Paul is riding to Rome, the heart of the Roman civilization, the heart of Caesar. People who are living right in the madness of all that. And he calls himself a servant of Christ Jesus. So no matter what position we hold within the kingdom, we would all do well to remember our position as servants of Christ. As servants of Christ, we must also remember that Christ's service to us is our model of service in his kingdom. And so that is the context, that's the title, that's the role that, that Paul placed himself in as subservient to the Christ. So to believe the gospel of God is to become a set-apart servant of Christ Jesus. And I want us to see this here. Later on into Romans, Romans chapter 6, you can go ahead and turn there. We won't be there for a while, so you're going to have a few t uh, nights sleep between now and then. But nonetheless, we'll jump ahead. Romans chapter 6, Paul expounds upon this idea of being a servant of Christ, what it's like to be slaves of righteousness is what he says. And you can pick up Romans chapter 6, verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin, so notice that language there, servants set free, right? And he uses this idea that we are all enslaved to sin, but in Christ, we have been set free from sin, verse 22, and have become slaves of God. See, now we are free slaves. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. And then we have the more famous verse that proceeds this. For the wages of sin, or the earnings of a bondservant to sin, is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, the free gift that's been given to servants who have done nothing to earn their freedom or to deserve such a wage is eternal life 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, free from sin, slaves to God in Christ. One master gives us the fruit of death. The other master has made us free slaves who freely receive the fruit of righteousness. This role of servant is not just for the apostle Paul or any of the apostles. It's not just for the elder. It's not just for the deacon. This position as servant of Christ is for all who claim to be in Christ. We are to live as set apart servants. The problem is for some of us, this idea of being a servant is so foreign to us because the only person that we've ever served is ourselves. It shows in the decisions you make, the way that you treat the people around you, the way that you respond to criticism. Labeling accountability as judgment does not vindicate your selfishness. For some, the idea of being a servant makes us so uncomfortable because our pride won't let us make ourselves subservient to anyone or anything. It's not optional for those who are in Christ. In order to be in Christ, you must be subservient to Christ in all things. So what does it mean to be a servant? Now, this is where our fleshly sense of self-determination can and should get easily offended. I want to give us two implications of what it means that we are Christ's servants. You see, to be a servant of Christ, we must have been purchased by Christ. Purchased. So this, this idea of a bondservant. We've been bought. We've been sold into this slavery and we've gone from being enslaved to our sinful desires, which gave us the fruit of death, and now we are enslaved, free slaves to God in Christ. But what was the payment? What was the currency? What was the, the market for the life and souls and services of his church? We read this in Ephesians 1 verse 7. In him that is Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Later on in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The author of Hebrews talks about the sacrificial system and the high priest and in, he says in Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 7, into the second, only the high priest goes. So only into that, that second place within the temple or within the tabernacle, only the high priest goes, but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. And then we go on to read in verse 12, that Christ has entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of, of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. I'll encourage you also to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 14. Where Peter is talking about our call to holiness as he's writing to these 
churches dispersed, the elect exiles as he calls them. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So don't enslave yourselves to sin once again. But instead, as he goes on to say, if you jump to verse 18, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. So we were ransomed, we were bought. By what? Not by silver or gold, verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This is what it means to be a set-apart servant. We have been purchased at a price that we could never afford but has been freely paid on our behalf. What do we also see here in verse 1? A servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, referring to his calling, his holy calling as the twelve were set apart for the gospel of God. You see, to be a servant of Christ, we must be under the authority of Christ, set apart, holy. That's the idea that Peter was getting there too in 1 Peter. We're not to conform to our former manner of life, but instead we are to submit. We're to be under the authority of the one who has purchased us by his blood. Do you live in such a way, church? Or do we live under the authority of a different owner, namely ourselves, as if we still owned our own rights? We like to carry the title of being owned by Christ, but we don't like so much to live in total surrender as those who have been purchased by his blood and live under his authority as Lord. Sharing the gospel just really isn't my thing. Too bad, you're a servant. Giving my own money to tithe or or really go beyond that and give to other things like missions. I really don't feel called to that. You were called when you surrendered to the gospel as a servant of Christ Jesus. Why would God give me these desires and passions if he didn't want me to indulge in them? God may have created you with those, but sin has distorted our natural desires so that they are no longer to please God, but instead we are enslaved to our fleshly desires, enslaved to sin. So as servants of Christ Jesus, we deny fleshly desires for the purpose of submitting ourselves to God's order, rule, and word. Why is this gospel? It's what is set apart for the gospel of God. Why is this that we are to be servants of Christ Jesus, set apart for him, set apart specifically for service to his gospel? Why is it good news? That's that, what that word gospel means. Sometimes we just read over that and don't realize and remember that it means good news. So why is this good news? Why are we set apart for the good news? Why have we been set apart as servants of Christ Jesus? I want to give us three foundational truths of the gospel that come from the rest of our text 
for today. Three reasons as to why the gospel is good news. Three reasons as to why Christ is worth surrendering ourselves to as servants. And this is the foundation of everything else that Paul has to say in this letter. That's why he so personalizes and reforms the typical Greek greeting into making it all about the gospel. He wants them to know what he's getting ready to expound upon throughout the rest of this letter. Moving on to verse 2. Which he promised beforehand, so that, that he's talking about promised the gospel, right? Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This is what gives the gospel its weight. This is what makes the gospel good news. This is what makes the gospel authoritative. Is that it, not, it is not some fly-by-night new age message that says, forsake the word of the past and follow this new word. Follow this different word. Follow this special word. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is the word of the past brought to fruition in Christ Jesus. Paul wants all believers to understand from a historical perspective the beauty and majesty of the gospel. To go beyond an initial knowledge of Jesus died for you to an understanding of who Jesus was and how his coming was foretold. Paul wants all believers to know that this gospel is not only a fulfillment of the scriptures, but a fulfillment which far surpasses human expectation. Jews had their own idea of how the scriptures would be fulfilled. Paul wants them to know this far exceeds what God has done in Christ Jesus, far exceeds whatever expectation you had on the Holy Scriptures. And this is the perfect fulfillment. May we never forget that this gospel to which we have surrendered, which has redeemed and continues to regenerate our lives, is of the providential purposes of God. Promised of old. As part of this personalized gospel reform greeting, Paul wants believers at Rome to know without a doubt where our knowledge of the gospel comes from. Where this story first began to be told and who its author is. So I want to give, again, three foundational truths of the gospel. The gospel is the promise of the scriptures. This is why we are able and this is why we call ourselves a people of the book. This is why we do events like How Firm a Foundation, which to the outside world, I'm sure, seems silly and pointless. But to us who believe, who have been drawn unto salvation according to his word, How Firm a Foundation is, a, is powerful. It's powerful because the word is powerful light and truth. We are a people of the book because it is through the book that God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. That we might live in proper love and fear of him. And doing how firm a foundation. I mean, just think about it. Why do we read the entire Bible? Why not just the New Testament? I mean, it would certainly be a quicker event and our sleep schedules wouldn't get thrown off. right? We read the entire New Testament in just one day yesterday. 
We read the entire thing because the Old Testament points us to the New Testament and the New Testament points us both back to the Old Testament to see the promise fulfilled and forward to see the ultimate consummation of the promise in Christ's return. I want us to draw two conclusions from this truth that we are people of the Scriptures, that that the gospel is the promise of the Scriptures. I want us to draw two conclusions from this. The first one, we must be students of the Scriptures. If the gospel is the promise of the Scriptures, then how can we say we believe the gospel and not know the Scriptures? I've grown weary of hearing pastors and lay people alike make the statement, well, I'm no theologian. Well, you should be. We all should be. I mean, who's going to hold me to account? Of course, I'm held accountable to God's word, but if you're not reading it and studying it and asking questions about it, then I can say whatever I want up here. This is one of the reasons we see false teaching so widely accepted. People surrender to a false, sentimental, therapeutic gospel and then never grow to be convinced of the gospel from the promises of Scripture. And therefore, they follow whatever wind of teaching tickles their ears and fluffs up their sinful hearts. It's one thing to hear the gospel, be pierced through the heart, repent and believe the gospel. It's an entirely different thing to call oneself a servant of Christ, set apart for the gospel. This requires a steadfast commitment to fight the flesh by hiding the word of truth within our hearts. Some of you call yourselves Christians, but don't even bother to touch your Bibles but once a week. And some even less than that. Some of you have been professing Christians for a long time, but your interaction with the Bible is a single verse of text followed by a few paragraphs from some author in a devotional. It's time to put the Bible down and to push yourself to a greater knowledge of God's word and feast on it. Others have all the head knowledge of the Bible, but are completely lacking in practice and obedience of it. Understand that that person who has all the knowledge and no practice and the person who has very little knowledge and no practice are in the same spot. So if you've got all that Bible head knowledge, but it's not affecting it here, it's not moving you in obedience, you're in the same spot as the person who never reads their Bible and still doesn't do, is, in, is being just as obedient as you. Church, if you want to be a better servant of Christ, a better communicator of his gospel, if you want to grow in grace and knowledge, go to the fountain, the flowing stream of knowledge, the truth and understanding. Go to the scriptures. Let us never be a church that is full of activities, constantly busy, always entertaining ourselves, all the while being completely ignorant of the truth of God's word. It's the truth of the scriptures which communicates the gospel and pierces through the stony exterior of our hearts to give us a heart of flesh in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is what the early church was convinced of. This is what Paul wants these believers in Rome to know and see, that this gospel is not something new, but a fulfillment of what was promised. 
This gospel is not a contradiction to the Old Testament, but is the perfect continuation of it. If you desire more wisdom, more strength, more peace, discernment, focus, then you must be transformed by the truth of the scriptures, which clearly communicate the gospel of Christ Jesus. We cannot know his will if we are ignorant to his word. I can't remember who that quote is from, but don't think it's from me. I just want to be honest there. The next thing, the second conclusion I want us to draw from that, we must make ourselves subject to the scriptures. So we must be students of the scriptures. So this goes back to the, the, that person that's full of all the head knowledge, but it doesn't come out in practice and obedience. Why? It's because they've made themselves a student of the scriptures, but they haven't made themselves subject to the scriptures. Now, notice the, the, the detail there. Do not confuse this with making ourselves the subject of the scriptures which is too often what we see nowadays. No, we must make ourselves subject to the scriptures. Not the subject of, but the subject to. As servants of Christ, we must prepare to make ourselves subject to whatever his word commands, no matter how uncomfortable it may make us feel. Biblical accountability is uncomfortable, but it's good and healthy. No matter how unnatural whatever God's word may be to our flesh, we must submit ourselves to it. No matter how frustratingly beautiful biblical community can be, we are subservient to his decrees. As we move on to verse 3, we see Paul fill in what this means. What does it mean that he promised beforehand in the scriptures, through the prophets, in the holy scriptures? What is the, the content? What is the meat of this gospel to which we have been set apart for, which we are servants of Christ Jesus? Verse three. Concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh. So let's go back to that, that first isolated statement there. You see it's isolated by two commas. So we end through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, comma, who was descended from David. Now what we have here in verses three and four is two participle clauses that describe for us the fulfillment of the Scriptures according to the promise. We're getting this description of everything that he's kind of built up on. So these give us a brief summation of how Christ is the fulfillment. However, before we get to those descriptors, we have this standalone statement in detail of Christ concerning his son. Now, I think this is one of those points where we've become so flippant with our knowledge and understanding of Christ that things which are lofty and proverbial truths can sometimes become mundane and assume knowledge. So we, we read that and we're like, concerning his son, of course. Like Jesus, the son of God, we know that. So let's keep, keep moving there. It's kind of what our brain does. Meaning we miss the significance of this statement. 
as its own descriptor. What we have to do here is consider the implications of each of these descriptors, not just simply note them as bland facts. This statement concerning his son is in reference to Christ's eternal existence. So notice how it stands alone from who was descended from David. This is John 1. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word. It was there. He was there. The word was with God and the word was God. Colossians 1. All things have been created through him and for him. See, Christ's fulfillment of the promise is the focal point of the gospel. Which, of course, means that Christ is the focal point of the gospel. I'm so weary of hearing the the self-centered gospel of today's version of Christianity. That would make Christ out to be our servant alone. He became a servant has been exalted that we might follow his pattern and be his servants to one day be exalted. So concerning his son, here, Christ did not become God's son at the incarnation. Christ did not become God's son because he was descended from David. Rather, he was the eternal, co-eternal, co-existent son whom the father fulfilled the promise to David through by sending him. Why is it important to note that he was descended from David according to the flesh, as we see there in verse 3? Descended from David according to the flesh. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul writing to Timothy who he's referred to as like a son to him. Timothy who is his, his disciple who he is growing as a pastor and sending to lead off the church and plant churches of his own and, and grow the church. And he says this to Timothy in 2 Timothy in what is likely one of if not his last communication with Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. These same details that he wants Timothy to hold with him and remember that this is the reason why God's word is not bound because God's word has been fulfilled. How has it been fulfilled? Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Why is that an important detail to remember? If you go, if you remember and you want to make a note of it, it'll be on the screen also. 2 Samuel 7 is where we see the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant, which of course was in continuation and fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. In, a, in Genesis, Genesis 12, 
where the Lord tells Abraham, kings shall come from you. 2 Samuel 7, we see that the initial, the shadow of fulfillment in David. Of course, the ultimate fulfillment is in Christ. 2 Samuel 7, we read this. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, this is the Lord speaking to David through the prophet Nathan, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Of course, the initial fulfillment of this Davidic covenant was thought to be in Solomon. But Solomon was shown himself to be but a shadow, a type of the one who was to come, which was Christ. This is why we can read things like Ronnie read for us a while ago in Revelation 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David the bright morning star. Why is it so important to continue this descendant from David? Because it's the fulfillment of the word. It was according to the flesh, as we read here in verse 3. Now, not to belabor a point, but if we were to eliminate verse 2, do you see how toothless verses 3 and 4 become? If you eliminate what he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, and then you attempt to describe this gospel, this good news, without that, if you just take that away, say, set apart for the gospel of God concerning his son. What does that mean? Descended from David according to the flesh. Why do I care who's descended from David? And who is David if it's not promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures? If a man showed up in the first century proclaiming to be the Son of God, the Messiah from the family line of David, we would be like, what's a Messiah if we didn't have the Old Testament? Who is David? Right? The, the Lamb of God. We're like, well, who is God? Which God? And why do you call yourself a Lamb? If we had no knowledge of the Old Testament law and promises and someone showed up saying those things, we would say, yeah, that guy is crazy. So why are we so able and easily to look at and dismiss men like David Koresh, Joseph Smith? Why can we look at Buddha and Muhammad and say, that's not it? Because they were not foretold. There's no promise of them according to what God had revealed of himself in the scriptures. We have no wellspring of truth from which to draw to tell us that these men were right, which means our wellspring of truth tells us that they are false. Continue. Descended from David according to the flesh. Verse 4. And was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. So, he was descended from David according to the flesh. Why is that an important detail? Remember, why is that an important thing which God did as a part of this good news, this gospel? It's because in order to be resurrected, you have to die. That death pays the ransom which bought us. In order to die, you have to be born 
of the flesh. This is why the emphasis on the eternal existence of the Son is so crucial. So going back to the beginning of verse 3, concerning His Son. Jesus did not become God's Son at the Incarnation. So Christmas is not the celebration of God choosing a human to make His Son. At the Incarnation, we rejoice that God the Father sent His co-equal, co-eternal Son, joining His full deity with full humanity of flesh, Perfectly and fully both. Why? In order for the lamb to be slaughtered, he had to be in the flesh. In order for the lamb to be raised in power, to become the lion from the tribe of Judah, he had to die. The resurrection is the declaration of God the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ the Son as Lord. The point here is that at the resurrection, Jesus was elevated in power where he goes from being pre-existent, co-eternal son to being the resurrected, messianic, co-eternal, pre-existent son in power. Some of you might say, what does this have to do with anything? That's just a bunch of lofty theological gobbledygook. My friend What this means is that he who was full deity stepped down into humanity, paid the price for our sin, was raised and is now elevated to a name that is above every name. And in him, not only do we have redemption through his blood, having been predestined for adoption as firstborn sons, Ephesians 1, but what we also read in Ephesians 1, starting in verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. So that's what this means, is that his death and resurrection has given us an inheritance. So not only have we been ransomed, this is that fruit, right? Slaves of sin leads to death, slaves of righteousness. We have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's Continuing on in Ephesians 1.11. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So not only do we have an inheritance according to his blood, and as he's redeemed us and brought us into this belonging as servants of him and set us apart for his gospel. But he sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit. So the same Holy Spirit that we see here as describing as declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, that same Holy Spirit seals us with the promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance, as we see in verse 14 of Ephesians 1, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is what all this means. Concerning his preexistent son, descended from David according to the promise of the, through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures and raised to new life according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. This is why we can read verse 16 of what Ronnie read for us just a few moments ago and see it as good 
news. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Why can we take it without price? Because the price has been paid and has, and that, that reward, that inheritance has been passed on to us who ultimately deserved nothing. This is the gospel. And this is what lays the foundation for everything else that we see here in the book of Romans. So the, the challenge here has been clear, I hope, if you are in Christ. The challenge to be students of the scriptures, to be subject to the word. There's this overarching challenge for you if you are not in Christ. And that is that if, if you're thirsty and you are not in Christ, then you don't get to freely come. If you desire to take the water of life, but you're not in Christ, and you're searching for that water in so many different avenues that our sinful flesh will lead us down, the only thing which will satisfy is the water of life that is given without price in Christ. You will only be satisfied in this life when you find yourself no longer a servant to your sinfulness, but a servant of Christ Jesus set apart for the gospel of God. Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Let's pray, church. God, we love you. Pray that you would continue to give us all necessary wisdom and discernment as we continue this series. Pray that you would help us to take seriously the weightiness of our text for today. God, give us the necessary humility to live as servants of you. God, give us a zeal to be set apart for your gospel. Lord, help us to be passionate in seeing your promise gospel being promised beforehand in the scriptures. Help us to be students of the scriptures. Help us to be subject to the scriptures. And as we do, help us to grow and continue to grow, not only in our understanding, but in our obedience to it. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.